Savage Minds. Today's guest is Professor Sophie Scott, CBE, Director of the Institute for Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. She studies the neurobiology of human vocal communication. She gave the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures in 2017 and was awarded the Michael Faraday Prize by the Royal Society in 2021. I welcome Sophie Scott to Savage Minds. One thing I miss since I left London is the Welcome Collection. I love the Welcome Trust Library as well. I've done a lot of research there over the years. Mm. And we are, you and I, among many others on social media, involved in discussions in what is currently called a quote-unquote culture war. Science is undergoing a crisis of public belief something that we have not seen since. And I started to write this question. I was thinking, when? Was it Galileo? Was it Copernicus? Was it Doubting Thomas? How far back (laughs) must we jump Mm. to see where there's been such an explosion over something that people are calling a culture war, but I maintain is something much more. It's a war against reason, against rationality, and against science fundamentally. And I was wondering your thoughts on this, since you are a scientist, or rather, you identify as one. Um, I think probably you're right in that um, science, as a, as a way of gathering knowledge about the world, has always upset people and said told things people didn't want to hear. Um, and you can't, you know, that that's going to happen. And that's not fundamentally different from any other way of finding out about the world you know uh, being an artist is a way of finding out about the world religion you can think of aspects of religion as being a way of like trying to ask questions about the world and sort of find ways that give you feeling answers that feel meaningful to you and those are all the things that can be sources of unhappiness and you know or just you know giving you something people or producing information people don't want to hear and that that's 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 going to happen I think um so I, I don't think there's anything fundamentally different now about science doing anything different or people's reaction to it being necessarily different. I think there is, um, I think, and I'm off my patch here, Julian, so you have to just bear with me, but my, my impression is that the sort of the increase in individualism as a way of kind of thinking about ourselves as humans, which has increased a great deal in the West over the last maybe hundred years, um, that's, that seems to be maybe the ground, the, 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 I don't know, the, the, the fertile ground on which a more um, organised dislike of anything that tells you what you don't want to hear, that could be science, it could be art, it could be religion, um, comes from if you kind of, if you locate the important aspects of your life as being solely within you, then it isn't comfortable to be told things that apply to you know, large groups of humans of which you might be a member. Um, and that doesn't mean that those things aren't necessarily empirically correct in terms of, you know, kind of uh, things that might affect your life. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't jibe well with that feeling that the person really in control of the whole situation here is you and the granularity of the, the meaning of social, uh, you know, kind of existence is, is at the level of the, the single person. Um, and so I, th- I think a lot of it comes from that. That's my impression. I'm, I'm very happy to be wrong. You know, in the discussions that we partake in online, a lot of people say, where's the peer-reviewed journal for that? <laughs> and I and many others actually have been victim to this 
group of publications, it's called Sage Publications, where I found at the beginning of this year, I believe, that I was not only mentioned in an article, I was defamed, I was misrepresented, so were others involved in the quote-unquote gender critical movement. And this was a rehashed blog piece that was published as a quote-unquote peer-reviewed article. Now, of course, my eyebrows went up. I've stepped away from academia, becoming a journalist and a full-time writer, but I still do academic work. And this was not academic. I don't know mm. what kind of peer they brought this to. I joke about it, it went to Brighton Pier with a six pack because there is no way this would pass the muster of a undergraduate thesis, much less a peer reviewed article. I've mm. written Sage, not the Sage that oversees the COVID stuff. But this is another Sage. It's like a group of publishers, I guess. They're out to make money, but they don't respond to criticism. They give you a patent, very flat answer. It was a bit rude, the first answer I got. They apparently did a full investigation after 24 hours, obviously <laughs> not an investigation, because I would have been involved. I would have had a Q&A with someone, at least by telephone. This was so unethical. And I thought, well, this is part of the problem. Even though I'm coming from, let's say, the humanities and social sciences, and you are coming from what are called the hard sciences, Peer review has shifted over the years, has it not? I think there's a fundamental problem within science um, that we don't address enough, which is that it's been very, very successful as an endeavour and has got very, very big. So I think there's some stats flowing around. Um, and I'm going to get this wrong, but there are there are more people sort of working in science now than at any point you add up anybody who ever has done up to all this point in history there's just it's sort of exploded exponentially and I think that's 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 often regarded as a good thing we want lots of social scientists we want lots of science you know we want research going on but it's had a I think it's had a, a knock-on effect and you can see it in a lot of different ways actually on the kind of um the kind of the the, the human level at which humans work it doesn't quite jibe with that scale so if I think, and this is not a particularly good example, but when I was first working as a postdoc in Cambridge in the 1990s, I could go to the, um, uh, you know, the cognitive psychology section of the British Psychological Society had a meeting every year and I could go to that and I would know everybody at that meeting because everybody who was working as a cognitive psychologist in the UK went to it. Um, and it wasn't a huge meeting, you know, there were maybe maybe 100 people there, maybe 150. The difference nowadays, I go to that same meeting and I don't know a single person. And that's just because the whole field, and that's one tiny bit of psychology, is absolutely exploded. There are so many more psychology departments, so many more psychology lecturers, that the field has just sh shot up exponentially. And that's true all over. So I think there are great problems and you can immediately see sort of gatekeeping issues and all sorts of issues and old boys clubs and networks of people that exclude others and cliques that but then what the positive aspects of everybody sort of knowing everybody else roughly in their field is uh that you do sort of it, it engenders a kind of um like a sense of familiarity which leads to greater i think politeness and just sort of friendliness like you all feel like you're part of the same thing um and it also it kind of leads to a general sense of what, what, what is the knowledge base? What are people doing? What is this thing that we're all engaged in? You know, we're feeling like we're a part of a common endeavour and we have a sense of what that endeavour is. And I think part of things just getting much bigger, and this is as much true for the social sciences as for other sciences, and psychology is sitting right in the middle, arguably, of that, 
is that this is this is probably happening everywhere and, and that kind of issue around like defaming someone in an article which should not get through any kind of publication that just that seems really inappropriate and if it did that you would if you would get a, a retraction or a correction when you wrote to point it out that sort of sense that you would need to you know the social pressure on you to either not do that in the first place or respond when you are approached means that it's sort of winnows away I, I, again happy to be wrong about this but I think there's been a sort of um you, you sort of see it everywhere it's, I've been an editor um at a couple of points over my career and it has definitely got harder to get people to do peer review it's just got harder because people are asked there's just so many more papers knocking around and people get asked to do it so much more and so they can't and they can't do it all and so you you end up with people saying no to everything because they can't take on anything and it's just you know so that the whole system I think is shaking I think in many different ways under the sheer scale of the enterprise and that's something I don't think we've we've got any we haven't even really recognized it as an issue let alone thought of ways to deal with it. Just the other day I got an email asking to do a peer review of an article offering me money to do it and I thought whoa this is the that was the first time ever and I remember when I was a tenure track professor and of course you did that as part of your job. You yeah, of course were not paid, right? Yeah. And now we have an inflation of so much work to be reviewed that yeah. they're having, I presume they're having to pay people because a lot of people are saying, no, I don't have time. I, th- I think that's exactly right. And of course they, they don't have time. That's not, um, I, I, you know, I've talked about individualism and then immediately come to my own case, but I, I very rarely review papers because you, when you do it, you want to do it properly. And I get asked to do it all the time. I, I could simply spend my whole job just reviewing papers. And you should review some. You rely on other people reviewing your papers. That's one of the bases on which it works. But when it's, there's not, I'm not sending out papers at that rate, you know? So it's not, it, it, we, we have to find some way of managing it. And as you say, the, 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 the payment rule, you can sort of swap not a rule the the idea that if you pay people they'll be more likely to say yes and you see other sort of incentives creeping in people do do this um and it has some success but as you say it worries you because that's well what about the people who can't pay for this where where's the money coming from and what does it mean for the other journals we should be we need some other sort of agreement about about sort of acceptability of as you say seeing it's part of the job and also for the journals to find some way of making it not always fall to the people who are probably most likely to say no that the ones that get asked well it also speaks to the precarity of the professorial profession today because one thing that shocked me this i tell you i still will never get over this discussion i was at a party in brighton one evening many years ago maybe seven and a woman was there and she was talking about where she was teaching in brighton two universities there so i won't say which but she was a part-time lecturer and could not survive on working several of those gigs. And when she told yeah. me how much she was making, I was beyond shocked. This is going on for years, as you know, in the States with adjunct professors who are often people who are either graduate students finishing their doctorates or, as is now more common, people who just couldn't get on the tenure track ladder because the tenure track ladder has disappeared. And obviously, if you're working many part-time kids to pull money together to survive, you can't afford to do free work such as peer reviews. Yeah. So this necessarily affects the entire field, not just the profession itself, but 
the verification of information that we are being given, such that, as you notice, there's a crisis in media now, where recently we were told with the 10th or 12th confirmation that Russiagate was a complete fabrication. So we can't trust the media. So we would expect to trust science journals or humanities journals, et cetera. Or mm. as we know that more and more people are facing being ousted from the university, should they say something unpopular? It leaves us, especially in your field in the sciences where, as you noted earlier, people don't necessarily like the facts that science evidences. I found this recently when I had a discussion with a guest on the show and I approached a subject that was very similar to the culture wars that we've been dealing with. And I pointed to the fact that when I wrote my first piece on the gender identity wars, I was in a cafe in Islington and a woman near me saw me editing my piece and she asked me what, what it was about. And I told her and she said, oh, that's similar to what I work on. I'm a clinical psychologist and we get death threats all the time because of the work we do. And I said, what do you work on? And she said, chronic fatigue syndrome. And mm. she told me a long story. That's when I worked on a piece about this. And I got to know several clinicians in London, including Simon Wellesley, who still to this day has his email, I'm sorry, his postal mail x-rayed because he's had all sorts of death threats over his work on this. And then last week in Norway, there was a paper that was published on the fact that there is now a formal recognition by the specialists in this field that advocacy is trying to push the science in the direction they want it to go, not in the direction that science goes. And this is something, Sophie, that we have not seen before historically, such as the time of Galileo. The church had an influence as to what they wanted the science to say, but not the masses. What do you think is happening such that now everyone with a Facebook account or a Twitter account can Google a few things, read a few papers, and consider themselves an expert on a subject such as that they can say, no, that's not true. There's a challenge to science that's being posed in a very bizarre way by these allegedly democratic structures such as social media, such that you might have to defend yourself against a troll. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you would have imagined, I remember um, with the sort of massive growth in people going to that university education in the UK, I, I thought like a growth, a growth in um, the third sector education would be largely a good thing. And again, in many ways, it has been a good thing. So that you can sort of, you can see a very strong correlation in the UK between the number of people going to university and sort of much more liberal views, say towards um, LGBTQ plus people. That's definitely kind of, now direction of causality, the correlation isn't necessarily clear, but those are two things that have strongly correlated. Um, but I think there's also uh, a lack of, um, we, ha we haven't been very good, I think, in the sciences of necessarily saying, look, you know, that it's, it's, knowledge matters and having some knowledge is better than no knowledge you would definitely want to have knowledge everybody should be out there researching a few papers to do that find out about stuff this is good but you have to have humility about the lack of the stuff that you don't know and the edges of what you know so even in you know I as a someone who's worked say with brains for most of my career which is now terrifyingly long time um, there's still masses of stuff I don't know and whole fields I don't know anything about whole fields so I don't really know anything about sociology or history 
politics or philosophy or and these are all things that actually bump you know my research bumps up against all the time um I can remember doing something on um I do stuff on emotional expression and I'd I'd said something in an interview about uh, crying and there are display rules about crying uh which means sort of like rules about how acceptable emotions emotional expressions are in different cultures in our culture we have one about crying we don't really like crying we particularly don't like men crying and somebody wrote to me and said you don't have to go very far back in history to find actually men crying in the UK being in England, actually a sign of nobility and sort of emotional civility and, you know, kind of like a, an emotional uh, sensitivity that was rather civilised and, you know, only the most kind of sensitive man would do this. So, um, you know, that was a very good example to me of how, my, you know, my, my scientific knowledge might have been absolutely on, on, on spot for describing now, but I knew nothing about the history of how we've got here. And what he pointed out was actually that's something that really changed with the First World War. So the tiniest little bit of, of, of historical information really helped me reframe that. And of course, that's going on all the time. But I think we we're, so we're all doing it. But I think it's useful for everyone to bear that in mind. You don't you might have read a few papers, but in fact, science never lives or dies on one paper. You know that it's it's the accumulation of of how knowledge is sort of moving in a particular direction across many different sources of different sorts of papers, and of course it's not a best question about what's right or wrong. Science isn't the business of collecting together everything that's right and excluding everything that's wrong. It's all wrong. It's going to be even stuff that's um, that's largely. So I have a paper from like twenty just over twenty years ago that's been really highly replicated. I built my whole sort of research career on it, and I'm very proud of it. I'm pleased with it. It's going to be wrong. It's already. We know there's there's you know my own work and other people's work sort of picked out that the, the the thing that I was describing is not as simple as I was describing it. And who would have thought it'd stay that simple? But also, I would be absolutely prepared to bet that the whole framing of it, as it will with all papers, even if the findings even if the finding isn't itself actually like incorrect we discovered that we were doing it wrong and it's not showing what we think it's showing even if it is showing something that's sort of replicable and last that that's what that means will change you know and that's because that's what science do it does it's a it's a sort of movement towards understanding the world and that builds continuously it's a process it's not a journey with an end point well, this is interesting because a lot of people want absolute truths. It's amazing how far we've come from <laughs> wanting to get rid of the church. But ultimately, yes. what we're seeing today is people trying to reinvoke a new type of church. I think that's true. And I think um, you know, there's a reason why religion is pretty much a universal human behavior. It's one of the most common forms for cultures to try and understand the world is to build a religion around it. Have And the sense that something else is responsible for everything that you encounter and see and that happens to you is a source of comfort and explanation and I totally understand it and it and the sort of the, the wonder of religion is that there are these religious elites often who tell you how things work so there's no ambiguity there are rights and wrongs they might be terrible but you're you know from another perspective but for you in that moment that, that there's great people like barriers people like kind of boundaries they like knowing where the edges of things are and so that the clarity that you get from religion um, really does work for a lot of human needs mentally and sort of cognitive needs um, so when you take that away people will try and find it somewhere else and you see it well you know you've just said it you, you see it in people's approach now to what they want science to be you see it in people's approach to sort of well things that might relate more to you know around identity you know that, that kind of really sort of seeking meaning and in, in in things that would not have been thought to be 
there might be an aspect of your life, but not sort of something that would define everything about you. Um, so I think that we've probably lost, <laughs> pains me to say this as an atheist, um, but I'm, <laughs> I grew up in a very religious family. Um, and just that, you know, I, I can sort of see the benefits of, of religion from a sort of just a, a social aspect of it. And I think this is one of the important points that we, even if you are an atheist like yourself, like I am, sorry, like myself, um, it's important to sort of spot when you are trying to seek a religious status for something else in your life because you're believing in it so much it's kind of replaced that for you. Salman Rushdie talked about the God-shaped hole and I think that's an aspect of what he was talking about. Yeah I was going to say you misatheized me but sorry, I think sorry. no no I'm joking no I, <laughs> I find that these are the things though, that are fascinating even when the debate comes out to I'm not an atheist I'm an agnostic and I'm thinking what at the end of the day, we come around language games, because like you, I came from a family of, well, two different religions. So we had uh, raga music on Saturday and Christian music on Sunday in my house. And I was raised in a very polyvalent religious family. At the same time, there was no idea from my family that we were going to hell. However, I was raised in the deep south of the United States where regularly you'd get knocks on the door saying, hi, you want to come to the revival with us? And these people would be very keen to let you know if you did not go to church that you would burn in hell. Mm. Now, I don't see much difference. They were kinder in a way about it than what I see on Twitter for saying <laughs> that sex is real. I have to say that there's something really troubling to me that, like you, I have recently in the last year or two said, well, religion really does have a necessary place. And I don't consider myself to be a religious person, but I think that we need to start to reevaluate these culture wars as a kind of religious war, where one side is very much the religious proselytizer and the other side is saying the earth is not flat sex is real, chanting. And it's troubling to watch because at the end of the mm. day, here we are now, Sophie, 21 months into what is a very troubling period for many people who've seen their livelihoods destroyed because of a pandemic, because of government's responses to pandemics, depending on what country you're in. And I would have thought that these wars would have subsided they did very briefly, but they came back with a fury. Yeah. So we're really in a, a point of time, historically, where people are grasping to their identities more than letting go and looking, let's say, at more peer-reviewed studies about COVID-19 transmission. I mean, I think it's true. So the, the thing that, um, you know, I... Well, at some point last year, so I remember somebody saying we just have to ban use of the phrase unprecedented. But one of the things that was very interesting psychologically about the past uh, 21 months is that there are very few things that happen to people on Earth all at the same time. You know, we are literally all in this together and there's a new threat that is coming in that, that about which there was just no information. So people were just on the, going by the seat of their pants for the first months of the pandemic we just did not know what we were dealing with and it is a very different sort of virus it works very differently um so everything we were doing was wrong and we just didn't know what any of the stuff meant because we were starting from zero we don't know what the time scale of it is anything like that we just did not know and it's absolutely 
terrifying. So it's happening to everybody. It's desperately uncertain. And I can remember, you know, all the sort of the sort of practical stuff about how are we even going to live our lives? What are we going to do when we're locked down? How are we going to do it? How am I going to feed my family? I, it, was, it was scary. The whole thing was scary and not you know, there's a thing that people, there are lots of other things to worry about. I'm stuck on my own. I can't be with the people I love. There were lots of other things as well. But the point was we were all thrown into it. So it had this horrible mix of being universal, of being very scary, very, very scary, and being absolutely uncertain. We did not know. And worst of all, no one knew. There was no knowledge. We were, the science was very, was just didn't know anything. We were learning very, very quickly as it was happening. So now we can say, well, well done, science. You know, we've got vaccines out there. With that, that, if you told me, you know, in the summer last year that there would be vaccines, I would not have believed you. Amazing stuff. But I think actually in the moment that, like you, I thought, well, at least the culture wars will calm down a bit because we've got something else to worry about. But people instead, because of this, I think, terrifying uncertainty, like what is going to happen? We don't know. This is possibly going to be what the entire rest of our lives are like and the world will end as a result sort of thing. People were thrown onto what did feel certain, and that throws you back onto these things in, with, with like doubling down. You can see, you know, the very, very correct outrage at what happened in America with George Floyd and other murders or you know police killings of black men, black women. You know, that's obviously bad, and you would obviously expect people to be responding to that. That is a totally normal thing to do. But the kind of folding that into something much, much bigger that is now roiling on in terms of very big political changes, the passion behind that, I think, would not have been the same if it hadn't been happening during the pandemic. So people could actually, there was something that felt certain. <laughs> Um, here's a thing that I can believe in this is a bad thing and we need to do things to stop this bad thing from happening and that's then to be something I can put passion into and time into because there's a, there's a known thing there's certainty to this I can feel certainty about it and in a world where nothing else is feeling very certain I can I, I can completely understand it now from this side I can I should have realized that's what, what, what was going to happen and obviously it's not, you know, it, and that's happened in lots of different directions as well. That's that's definitely the people have sort of doubled down on those things. Well, you work in a field that I find fascinating and it's very relative to what we've been going through, both your work on nonverbal emotional vocalizations and the neuroscience of laughter and also of crying. A lot of us mm -hmm. have been brought to tears constantly at times over these past 21 months yet we've had the need for laughter this whole time. Yeah. And I'm referring to your forthcoming paper in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London's Biological Sciences. You claim that we need to consider speech production as an expression of the human voice in a more general sense. In this paper, you argue that we need to widen out the kinds of vocal behaviors that are explored if we want to understand the neural underpinnings of the true range of sound making capabilities of the human voice. Can you explain this to our listeners? Yes. <laughs> um, well, it, it's going to sound really silly, um, but the, the vast amount of research that goes on into looking at how humans express things with their voices looks at speech perception, and speech production. And that's partly because that's what we do when we're talking, you know, and talking is, it is a human linguistic universal. All human um, cultures will, unless they are not hearing, or capital D deaf, and signing, 
people will revert to some form of vocal communication. That is, that's the, do that's the dominant form for communication for humans, for linguistic communication. And what we mostly do with that is talk to each other. So it's a social behavior. So it really matters if there's a problem with that. You know, if you have a stroke and you have difficulty talking, that will immediately impact your social life in a detrimental way. The, the figures on people's diminishing size of their social networks after stroke that stops them from talking is horrific it's just awful so it's all and, it, and it's a big clinical problem so and, I, we, and we've known about the brain basis of these for a very long time the thing that I got very interested in is actually that when we talk we tend to you know scientists have looked at people talking and said oh there's spoken language you know there is there's, there's the you know it could be written down it could be hieroglyphics that it could be sort of represented in different forms it, here it's the spoken form of this amazing thing which is human language but actually when somebody is talking there is a huge amount of other information that they are expressing in there including their emotions their identity things to do with their health their age their socioeconomic status their, their geographical origins um their affiliations and their affections so we will change our voice depending on who we're talking to and that's just the one we're talking um so there's, there's a great deal more information in there and for example identity which feels like it's just going to come out of you because you're that body shape and that's why you sound the way you do. It's not. When you talk, you are being yourself. You are actually putting your own identity in there. If you make an involuntary sound like a sneeze or a helpless laugh, people find it very difficult to tell people apart from that. Whereas if someone's doing something voluntary with their voice, we can identity quite easily. So in fact, you're talking, you are choosing what you say, but you're also being you. And this was one of the sort of like starting points when I was thinking about this. And then I thought, well, the other thing that's true is that when we talk, sorry, when we, we tend to look at people talking and think, well, that's why we've got this instrument, this extraordinary instrument. And there's actually nothing else on earth that can do what humans can do with their voices. It's, it is amazing. The, the evolutionary adaptations that mean we can do what we're doing when we're talking is a completely unique in nature. But of course, it's not the only thing we do with our voices. You can sing, you can beatbox, you can rap. We talk completely differently in different situations. So I'm talking to you differently now than if I was trying to buy fruit on Chapel Market or if I was trying to, um, you know, kind of uh, d d tell some teenagers to not to throw bricks in a playground or something, you know. So it's a, there's a really big um, range of things we can do with our voices. And in fact, beatboxing is an example where the things that people do in their beatboxing is so much more complex that we do than we do when we're talking it's like an insight into how much more we can do with this instrument and as soon as you start looking at the brain systems that underpin these other things we do with our voices you start to see that these these brain areas that we've known about for a very long time from the kind of work of the german and the french neurologists in the in the 19th century um you start, which are interesting, very left lateralized. So spoken language seems to be very much on the left side of the brain. But as soon as you do other things, like you start beatboxing or singing, it all moves over to the right as well. So actually what you think of as the network, it probably makes sense to think of the speech network as part of this bigger network. That is the vocal, the voice in its bigger range. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, probably because speech became so incredibly useful to humans we assume that the reason why we've evolved all this stuff is because we can talk with it but actually we could only talk with this the anatomy that we have for talking once it was all in place it had to evolve for another reason and those other reasons are likely musical so in fact what you have to think about probably is the, mu the human voice as being an absolutely incredible musical instrument with which we can talk.
And what does this mean then? Well, you speak about beatboxing, but what does this mean in terms of, I've often wondered, why is it that we universally all cry the same or we mm. universally all laugh the same? And this must be yep. neurologically wired. Exactly. Absolutely. Yet there are so many <laughs> other reactions that we have that are very different, that are in language, such as something happens, it's bad or forgot something at home you left your keys inside the house and you're like in French it's zut or in English depending on where you are it's shit or whatever yeah. you know various words come out of the mouth yeah these are language specific reactions where laughter and crying are not and similarly there's a point at which one becomes the other where you cry so hard you could laugh or often laugh so hard that you begin to cry Absolutely. And in fact, you, you, you've absolutely put your finger on it there. So everything that I just talked about that we do when we're talking and we're singing or we're beatboxing, um, that is part of these networks in the brain that are specific to humans. You don't find them in other animals and they are under voluntary control and they are sitting in different parts of the brain and a completely different system for controlling vocalizations, which actually runs down the, the midline of the brain. From, so it's not sitting out at the edges with this voluntary, voluntary network and that's an involuntary vocalization network and that's the network that we share with all other mammals and that is associated with things like laughing like crying screaming in pain um shouting out in you know shout, screaming in horror or making a surprise noise those sorts of things that you can sometimes find yourself doing even if you didn't want to and we make those actually in a very different way in terms of how we use our articulators we don't do any of the fancy stuff we do when we're talking or we're um, beatboxing we vocalize just like other mammals so they are much more like animal calls than they are like speech and that's why we think while they are universally certainly some of them are universally recognized they're in fact very very basic prepotent vocal responses that are going to be produced no matter where you grow up so we've shown that laughter is recognized in, in all human cultures that we've tested now they might do different things with it but they the bottom line they recognize what that is and that's not true for all things that, exactly as you say not all things that we do with our voice the thing that's interesting about laughter and crying is that they are they, they are examples of these non-verbal vocalizations that as far as we can see you find in all human cultures they're recognized in all human cultures you don't have to have grown up in the same environment to recognize them um, but actually laughter and crying have a bit more in common than that because that's you know mm -hmm. the other non-verbally vocal emotional vocalizations that are recognized across culture are things like disgust sounds or Ooh! surprise sounds and but they are kind of just like there seem to be because there are some emotions that are you know kind of innate and prepotent and shared across a, a part of our mammalian heritage not all our emotions by far but just things like fear and anger and disgust and sadness but if you look at laughter and crying they do seem to be interestingly similar for some other reasons so they they both appear very early in your life so crying they, newborns can cry very soon after they're born and about three months after that they start laughing so in fact, those are things that are part of your involuntary communicative repertoire quite early in your life. And then quite soon, babies start using them voluntarily. They start knowing things about them. So babies will laugh, will cry in different ways, depending on what's wrong. I remember my, my God, my son's pain cry rings in my ears. I can still remember it. And it was totally different 
different from is I am hungry cry or I am tired. And that's not unusual. That's a very common thing because babies are, it's involuntary, but it's, they're sort of shaping it with where they're going with this. And by the time babies are like, well, becoming toddlers long before they're verbal, they will do things like laugh and cry very in a very communicative way. So babies will do things to make their parents laugh and they will use, they, they understand what laughter means when their parents laugh to sort of indicate a situation is um, safe or not. And so they've got this kind of early importance and they're used very communicatively early in your life. And they also, um, they're actually made in very similar ways. So they are produced very similarly. They're mostly to do with actually changes in how your rib cage is moving to sort of force sound out. But they also are quite enduring. Like when you start laughing and you start crying, it's very hard to stop. Um, you don't continue making disgusted noises when you feel disgusted, but laughter and crying sort of overwhelm you. That video of uh, Allegra Stratton, who is the person shown laughing in a video recorded just after the party that was we did definitely happen last year in the UK at number 10. She resigned yesterday and she came out and she was crying all the way through that. And I suspect she probably didn't want to cry, but it, you know, the crying was getting in there. She just kept, there, there was there was crying sounds and sort of, it was visibly audibly affecting her voice. And laughter and crying really do that. Once they've turned up, they kind of hang around and they make you take part in it for quite a long while. They can kind of, they can kind of overwhelm your, laugh, your motor system and stop you from using this voluntary network as effectively. They also um, make you feel better. I didn't believe this because I know that people feel better when they've been laughing. I feel terrible when I've been crying. I go to great lengths to avoid crying because I feel so unwell. There's a guy in, um, in, in the Netherlands who's been researching crying and he pointed out that most people report feeling better when they've been crying. And I thought, well, that's obviously wrong. So I ran a study to replicate it. And no, 80% of people feel better when they've been crying. Um, so there's an improvement in your mood associated with both. And they're both associated with tears. Humans are the only animals that produce emotional tears. All animals, that all mammals will produce tears because when their eyes are irritated or inflamed, we are the only animal that will also produce them for as an emotional signifier. Most people find they do this when they cry. Many people find they do this when they laugh. And some people find they do it when they are angry. Most of those people are women. And so it seems exactly what it means. We don't know. I think it seems to be an indicator of sort of maybe a mix of intensity and helplessness, but we're still finding that out. Um, so that's there, there seems to be this kind of very close relationship between crying and laughing, probably for our whole lives that has very different, you know, different points in your life. It has different meaning, but um, they, they sort of share. A, oh, the final thing is they're both associated with um, disorders associated with brain damage. So you can have either associated with head injury or a progressive disease like a dementia the appearance of unwanted laughing or unwanted crying or both mm -hmm. and that's often not always but often in the absence of any emotional expression and it's completely inappropriate it's not been triggered by something that's meaningful and it seems to be something being unmasked by the progressive brain disease or the head injury but you don't get that for other emotional vocalizations you don't get people making inappropriate disgusted noises or surprise noises so there's something quite interesting there about again I think that's telling us something about how they how they're able to have an access to the motor system that is different from other emotions. In this same paper I believe it's coming out in January you argue that the neural control of the voice I'm quoting you can and should be considered to be a flexible system into which 
more right hemispheric networks are differentially recruited based on the factors that are modulating vocal production. And in this piece, mm. you examine how this flexible network is recruited to express aspects of nonverbal information in the voice, which you say can be identity and social traits. Can you explain what you mean here by this and to include what you mean by identity in this age of all things identity? <laughs> by identity, I mean sort of you being you in your voice. We don't think of ourselves as being um, as when we talk. You know, we, people often say that they don't like the sound of their own voice. Um, but what your your voice is, in fact, completely shaped by your who you how you've grown up, who you've learnt your language from, because we are language learners. You know, we, we're, we're song learners like birds, um, passerine birds. And we who and where you've learned to talk will influence what you sound like. But also your voice is very influenced by how you'd like people to see you and who you would like people to think of you as so um I remember a few years ago I'm from Blackburn in the north of England and somebody said to me oh where are you where are you from and I said I'm from Blackburn and they said oh you must have lost your accent when you became a professor at UCL and I was like ha 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 no then I thought no I did actually I very <laughs> rarely I very rarely it does sometimes sometimes I can hear myself giving a talk particularly if I'm anxious when, I, when I'm listening to myself giving a talk I think the, the Lancashire starts coming back in because I'm not paying attention um but in fact all of us are doing that all the time we're sort of it's, it's always a performance if you like all of us all the time when we're doing something voluntary with our voice there is a there's a performative element to that and you are putting your voice on show and part of that is you being who you want to be another good example is over the last sort of 60 years or so in the west female voices have got lower and lower in pitch and that seems to mark women coming into the workplace um and there's lots of things that you can't change about your appearance or your sort of visible femininity that you can change your voice because in fact in adult male and adult female voices the the, the biggest sort of sexually dimorphic trait between adult females and adult males is the voice it's male male voices are deeper than female voices by a margin and that gives males because they also can go very high male voices have got a wider range than female voices now that's a physiological anatomical difference in practice how those voices are used varies a lot so voices female voices have gone down in pitch over the past uh, sort of say 50 60 years in the west if you go to another country where um sex marked differences in the culture are much more clear or much more made manifest um like japan you'll find that women will speak with higher pitched voices than they do in the west and men will speak with lower pitched voices than men in the west so you've got these very big cultural influences on it. And this also affects you in the moment. So you, the more you like the person that you're talking to, the more you will change your voice to be like theirs. There's some slightly discomforting data showing that men who like the males who like a female that they're talking to will raise the pitch of their voice more to kind of meet hers. Um, now, it, it's, that's going to go in, it's going to be a highly nonlinear system that it's not just going to be matching, like converging on a pitch because you like each other. You know, we're not mosquitoes, but um, it's it's very very complex but it's happening at a lot of different levels so the more you like the person you're talking to the more you will kind of start to use not just pitch but yeah, accents and the words that they use you will start to use you'll start to mirror back to each other the syntax so it's a very very dynamic system 
identity in the voice. It's being influenced by all these different things. And we have some evidence from brain imaging studies that the brain areas that control speech production, these left lateralized networks, they also control deliberate attempts to affect what you sound like. So if you very knowingly try and change what your voice sounds like, that is driven by the, so the same brain area that's choosing the words that you say is also saying, say it like this. But there's also lots of networks in the right hemisphere that seem to kick in when you are changing your voice in a way that might not require you thinking, I now want to sound like this. You know, may it be less conscious, in other words. So some of that's to do with, um, I think, again, controlled aspects of pitch. So when you are doing, there's not very much work on this, but when you sing, you recruit more right hemisphere systems, many more than you do than when you're talking. And there's, obviously you use pitch when you're speaking, but you use it in a very different way when you're singing. And that seems to be leaning more in the right hemisphere. And when you align your voice with somebody else, as if you were in prayer or doing some sort of um, pledging allegiance, there's lots of, you know, when people use that, when speak synchronously with other people, that pushes over to the right as well compared to speaking on your own. So there's something about not just um, like the, the being who you are in your voice, there's also the what exactly you're doing with your voice and when you are using pitch in a different way or in trying to align the pitch of your voice to somebody else, that seems to start to recruit these right hemisphere systems as well. So I think what I was trying to argue in that paper is the brain network that we think we know is processing speech production that's also doing speech speaker identity you're it's controlling what you sound like and in fact when you talk to patients that have damaged those areas and they struggle to talk the thing that irritates them very often is not just that they find it difficult to say the words that they want to say they also find they'll say i don't sound like i used to and what they mean is my voice has changed i'm not me in my voice so the, mm -hmm. we've always known this and in fact there's a, an amazing paper about about this written about aphasia saying you can think of it as a as being like identity theft somebody comes along and they rob you of your words but they also rob you of being you when you talk and they go together the two go together so i was trying to push that in the paper and i was also trying to say and then there's whole and that whole other networks on the right that we know totally ignore normally seem to be really important for other perhaps if the most loose general sense the more musical uses of the voice start to really heavily recruit this. So it's both the things we thought we knew about are doing more than we thought. And also there are other brain areas that we need to take seriously just because they're not necessarily activated when you talk doesn't mean to say they're not really important for your voice. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, there's also been some interesting studies anthropologically on how the tone and the pitch of voice influences even the survival rate of children. There was a study done in 2007 of the Hadza, a Tanzanian hunter-gatherer tribe, where they found that of the subjects they studied, those with the control for age, males who had a lower vocal pitch had more surviving children. And I have thought a lot about this over the years because I was thinking, well, why would that be? 
what is it yes. about since such as what you also said that men who want to show women an interest that they have in them they will lighten up their pitch and go up yes. so we know that the way we use our voices has all kinds of inflections and results totally and what you say in terms of identity is fascinating because that's why I asked you in fact about what you meant by identity because what we see used for identity today is something completely alien we've almost lost that sense of selfhood actual selfhood not this politicized selfhood but something that we relate to that anthropomorphic self our bodies yes so I think when I talk about identity in the voice I'm talking about something that you do that's performing or expressing something that's actually very complex from who you want to be to who you're with to where you come from to how you feel um so voices can be really truthy in that way it's very hard to keep a poker voice you know poker face is much more possible and um and they're both very very flexible and but also give away a lot about you that you may not realize is being given away and I think the other thing that's really important about it is that it's pretty much always a social thing you hardly ever use your voice when you're on your own you might sing when you're on your own but to practice singing but as a sort of you know the kind of the conversations vocal stuff joint use of the voice um and even you know kind of singing is is it's often more in a kind of something you're more likely to do when you're with other people we enjoy doing these things more when we're with other people so there's a there's a sort of social self to the voice that is and that's true for laughter as well lots and lots of things we do with our voices really are things we only do when there are other people there if you look at um if you were to look at humans the way that we look at songbirds and you know sea mammals that use that have complex songs and you can and, you know we look at the, the sperm whales and say what are they doing with their voices we look at the dolphins and say what are they doing with their voices and you know songbirds are using their voices to attract mates and to defend territory and um dolphins are well using each other's names and using their voices to hunt you kind of by actually echolocation things like that um if you were to look at humans in that same way you'd say it's they they use it for social reasons they don't do it when there's no one else there you know it's it's the, that's the kind of the, it's a it's an identity that is a social construction but the purpose of it is for social reasons that's why it's there at all you mentioned earlier that humans are the only mammals who have emotional tears mm. but we're not the only animals that have the ability for laughter are we no and other animals have distress vocalization so you know if you um <laughs> Somebody, my friends put a clip on Facebook the other day of uh, he has two dogs and one dog rather proudly but determinedly had a stick and was sitting with its stick and its foot on the stick and ignoring another dog that was sitting behind it going, ooh, ooh, ooh. I was like, I want the stick. So that's, you know, there was this distress vocalisation going on that was very unmissable. But the, 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 there's no tears accompanying it. So that was just, but there's definitely the case that, in fact, as suggested by Charles Darwin, there are this handful of emotional expressions that you find in humans and you find in all human communities and you find or can find examples of them in other animals, certainly other mammals. And that's true for laughter as well. So um, lots of people have argued, like Nietzsche thought that only, only man laughed because only man needed to be able to laugh at how terrible everything was. But actually, it's not true. You find laughter like vocalisations in other apes. And it's really easy with other apes because it looks and sounds like laughter. 
Um, but you also find a lot of behavior, sorry, vocal behavior that completely corresponds to how laughter is used by apes in rats. And I suspect there's more laughter out there. There's no, um, there's very little uh, sort of comparative psychology going on into laughter at the moment, which is a shame because I think it's actually probably one of the more interesting behaviors we do. Well, I've noticed with my eight-year-old, she's almost nine now, her laughter hasn't changed so much as her understanding about what it is socially and culturally. For instance, certainly from before COVID, she had another relationship to humor. Today, it's mm. much more developed, partly because of my humor. <laughs> yeah. And you know, she'll say, mommy, when can I drive a car? And I'll say, when I'm 100. Now, that worked when she was three and four. But now she's like, yeah. mm, no. <laughs> I think when I'm younger, yeah. I'm like, no, when I'm 100. So it's a joke that goes on. She knows the reality, of yeah. course. But she's also developed her personhood in this past year in such a way that I see reactions from her that are even exasperation, which I never saw before, or sarcasm and all of these details that are so beautiful on the personality. Now, when we go to a comedy club or even when we're watching a movie and there's a funny line, we know it's funny only because we laugh. It, in fact, it's quite interesting how canned laughter was used in the 1950s and 60s and 70s in TV shows, such that it would remind people not only when to laugh, but to indicate that this is laughable. Yeah. What is it about laughter that brings us into this very tight social fabric that we consider I don't know. Let me call it humor. Um, it's a very good question. And I, th I think. I think it is very interesting because to some degrees you can separate them. So if you look at laughter and say, well, it's a. It's a, whatever you find it in mammals, it's a social behavior. It happens when you're with another, you know, conspecific often to do wherever you find it. It's associated initially in your life with things like tickling. And so two people have to be there. You can't tickle yourself. And it has this um, really quite complex role in interaction. So it's a signifier that you're playing and play is an inherently ambiguous behavior, but it's really important to mammals. So it's one of the ways that you show that your intention is playful is to laugh. I'm not being sexual. I'm not going to eat you. This is this is playful behavior. And it's used to sort of in quite complex social ways. So humans laugh differently if they're laughing, you know, helplessly than if they're having a conversation. And you find the same thing for chimps. So chimps laugh differently if they're being tickled than if they're trying to prolong a play encounter. So it's really quite a complex thing. And rats who have been devocalized, so they can't make any sounds, they, they can't make the rat laughter sound to show that they're playing, they are more likely to get bitten during play because the play is more likely to get out of hand because they can't make the sound that shows that they are being playful. So you've got this very complex behavior, even in rats, they're very, very subtle and it's intensely social. And then you have humor and, and what you don't find, and people keep sending me videos of an orangutan responding to a magic trick on this, but you, what you don't find is you don't find any examples in the, in the animal literature of any mammal, apart from humans, laughing at stuff that's not kind of very immediate and very um, physical. 
So you don't find, for example, contagious laughter. Humans will laugh just because somebody else is laughing and you don't find that in chimpanzees or other apes. So it's, yeah, you don't, you need to be in the thing. You need to be playing with other apes to be laughing or another rat. As soon as you're distanced from it, you don't laugh watching it. You know, you don't laugh when another ape falls over or something. There's no, it's, it, it can't jump the gap. It, it has to be physical. Um, and then as soon as humans appear, modern humans appear, wherever you find them making marks on earth they might they're doing things you'll find things included that are meant to be funny you'll find jokes you'll find scatological humor you'll find you know a graffiti there's a whole roman book called the laughter lover and so you get this thing and you can sort of think of humor as being um well you know just a, a particular mode of being in a human linguistic form you know um but i think that it's possible that they are not totally separate um, I think if you go back to this point that humans can laugh contagiously and that and other animals don't, I think that's probably the first sign that you see in humans, well, one of the first signs you see in humans that laugh, laugh can kind of be something that goes across a distance. It doesn't have to have an immediate physical reference. And in fact, you see that in human babies. So tickling will make a baby rat laugh, make a baby chimpanzee laugh, make a baby human laugh, but you can also make a baby human laugh without touching it. You can play peekaboo, you can do walk in a funny way or make a funny sound, and that will make human babies laugh. And that's someone else has to be there. Peekaboo doesn't work on the TV screen, but that's already saying right from the outset, actually, humans can laugh at something that is distanced from them. And what maintains the same role is the person doing it intends to make them laugh. They are looking, you know, they're looking to see if you're trying to make them laugh, and then they'll that's making it much more likely that they will find it funny. And that does spin through to human reactions to humour. So even for, there's, there's not that much research into it, but there are big social aspects to our responses to humour. So people will find jokes funnier if they think that they were told by a comedian who they know to be a comedian than somebody who's famous and not a comedian. So people will rate the same joke as funnier if they think Sarah Millican told it than if they think Jamie Oliver told it. And... If you, you know, if you don't like a comedian, it is extremely unlikely that they will make you laugh no matter what they say. You know, so there's a big kind of effective component there. If you think that this person's horrible, then that you're just going to sit there going, no, I don't like you. And we've found that going back to your canned laughter example, if you add laughter onto the end of a joke, people will rate that joke as funnier. And we don't know why we're trying to find out why at the moment, but it could it could just be contagion. But I think it could also be that it sounds like other people thought it was funny, you know. So there's a really big social element to humour as well as to laughter. So everything that affects laughter affects humour as well. And I think a really important part of humour, like you say, is this, is this kind of, is someone intending to do this for you, to actually put, uh, you know, that they're framing this in a humorous way. And that's probably why we think things done by comedians are funnier, because they've brought that whole social role with them. And that's and we will often frame everything they do as being funny. I mean, there are some couple of grisly examples of comedians dying on stage and people laughing because they thought it was part of the act. Because, why? you know, that's what you're here for. Your first reaction is, oh, my God, he's had a heart attack. Um, but that's and the same is true for people who are setting out, you know, people who are not known as comedians, but then try to make a joke. People go, what's going on? <laughs> I don't understand this. Um, you know, and um, so it's the, the, the intention of the person performing is really, really big part of it. But as you say, the kind of the eyes with which we receive it as we grow up greatly change. So, you're, as I say, toddlers, 
really understand the importance of laughter, but they are the start of a journey that we don't know very much about. But for example, again, like just to go back to an example, um, I can remember my son being at a birthday party when he was about five and he knew the birthday boy, but he didn't know any of the other kids, boys there because they all went to school with the birthday boy. And at a point at tea, they all just started laughing at my son because he, they didn't know him. And it was, oh, like, ha, ha, look at your T-shirt. Ha, ha, look at how you're eating. And he was laughing along because he didn't see that as them laughing at him. Um, but it, we couldn't bear it. Like, we had to leave. I thought one of me and my partner were going to hit somebody. You know, it was just awful. Um, these little shits being horrible to my son. Um, and he didn't respond like that at all. And then within nine months, we were watching the Simpsons. He was probably in there about six. We were watching the Simpsons movie, which starts with that really extended version of Bart's skateboard ride. And he's doing it in the nude. And, um, and it's very funny. And my son got uncontrollably angry because he said, you're laughing at Bart. You're laughing at Bart. So we're not laughing at Bart. We're laughing at this whole sequence. It's funny because normally he does this journey on the skateboard and different things happening. And now he's, they, they're doing it and sort of, you know, they're covering up his little cartoon genitalia and it's just wittily done. And he, he wouldn't have it. He was furious because you're laughing at Bart. You must not laugh at him. And that kind of understanding he's starting to get there of that laughter. Sometimes you're being laughed at. Sometimes people laugh at things. And it's a huge part of your understanding of laughter is not just the intention of the person who's trying to make you laugh, but when there's laughter, am I the subject here? Am I being laughed at? You know, am I included in this? Am I excluded? Or am I being actually ridiculed? Horrible stuff. So you're, you're learning about all the complexity of the social complexity of laughter throughout your entire early adult life through, as far as I can see, your 20s, which is, you know, your personality is still something you're developing into your early 20s. And I think your, your social understanding of the world is still developing and thus your understanding of laughter. But the other day I had Matthias Desmet on the show and we spoke about the crowd formations around what's happening with lockdowns. And from the very dystopic sphere, he examined the way in which people are grouping around lockdown measures and what he deems to be a very totalitarian hold on power right now because of our need to express our individuality through the enforcement of groups. And while you were speaking, I was thinking about this from the more humorous side in the sense of maybe what we like about canned laughter and what we like about laughing is laughing together, that that mm. reinforces our sense of group, our sense of wholeness, of integrity, of not being alone. Yes, no, I think it's a massive part of it. So um, there's, I mean, there's data showing that you're 30, three zero times more likely to laugh if there's somebody else with you than when you're on your own. And um, and friends, if you have two friends talking together, they laugh incredibly. Like we found in our study, an average of 10% of the time was just spent shared laughing when friends had a conversation. That's an average. Some people are laughing together for even more than that. It's a huge <laughs> amount of time in the conversation. So you've got this, it has a phenomenally important role in social interactions. And I think that absolutely feeds over into our experience of being in an audience or a bigger group, because it's a very efficient, very low cost way of sharing something across the group very quickly. Again, contagion, you're much more likely to catch a laugh from someone you know than someone you don't know. So even contagious laughter is a marker of group status, you know? And it's Robin Dunbar's argued that laughter groups he's very interested in the evolution of language he thinks that we were you know we were laughing together contagiously probably before we were talking to each other 
you know, it was it was a sort of way of a, a very quickly enforcing a, a group structure or reinforcing a group structure and the social bonds within that group in advance of actually being able to share words. When you spoke about contagious laughter, I remember as a child, going back to religion, my sister and I were forced to sing to the church, she on her violin, why I was chosen. I'm not a singer. You would pay me to stop singing. At any rate, my sister started playing. It was holy, holy, holy. <laughs> she got the giggles. Then I got the giggles. Long story short, our father was not happy. And I don't remember what the church's response was, but I kept thinking, well, laughter is itself not only contagious, but it can also be a result of nervousness, as in the case of my sister. We have laughter not just in response to humor. How did that come about? I think um, a very, very, if you think of laughter as being um, at its heart, a, a play behavior, an indication that you're playing, um, there's a beautiful paper by a guy called Yank Paxep who described laughter as being across animals, wherever you found it. He said it's like, it functions like an invitation to play. And actually it's a very common use of, of human laughter is, is this kind of reframing the emotional tone of an interaction as playful, which is why we laugh a lot when we're in stress or we'll try to laugh when we're in stress because it's a way of sort of trying to feel better together and it works. If you can actually do that in the moment, it will work. Of course, it's not necessarily appropriate or acceptable. And other sometimes other people don't join in, in which case it's worse. It's definitely worse. Um, but I think it's it's definitely got a there's a relationship with sort of trying to deal with stressful situations by using laughter to sort of reframe it. Like, I'm OK. This is, in fact, fine. Um, somebody sent me a, a clip of a female soldier who a bullet smashes on the wall just next to her and she's clearly being there's a sniper and her first reaction is to laugh and then she looks really shaken you know and she looks at the person with the camera to laugh and then she looks well what was that um but that's that's that kind of, it's incredibly immediate response that sort of um like let, let, oh this this is fine i'm okay um i think there's probably also a second answer here which is I suspect that laughter can also be sometimes a bit more um, uncontrollably associated with stress so um, I've heard enough stories of people in really terrible situations who have found that they or someone they were with could not stop laughing and it wasn't like a sort of a little giggle to make everybody feel better it was absolutely uncontrollable hysteria that I think we don't have a good answer for but I suspect almost more like a sort of you know, maybe something more approaching real terror or shock that you might you know kind of there might be an element there for your sister in the violin but um and I, there may be more individual differences there and in how susceptible people are to that but there's certainly I, I can remember someone saying you know I, I they'd been in a car accident and they couldn't stop laughing and it was really really inappropriate um and uh, meant they couldn't do the things they wanted to do to sort of deal with this difficult situation. So, you know, it, that, that would gone beyond anything, like a bit of laughter to sort of to break the ice kind of thing. So, yeah. Yes, I remember many years ago, I, every day I would go to my local fruit and vegetable person when I was living in Bologna. One day he says, did you hear? There was a terrorist attack in New York today. And I laughed. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the punchline? And he goes, no, there was really the Twin yeah. Towers. And I said, yeah, yeah. And I was laughing, thinking this is the beginning of a joke. And he was about to tell me the punchline. 
Yeah. So I can, I can relate to that because you don't, sometimes things are so shocking yeah. that the only logical reaction is to laugh. I know you can't mean it. I know that this is playful. And now, now it's time for you to tell me that it is, you know, that's what you're doing with your laughter. <laughs> and then we can all feel better about what sounds like a terrible thing. Yeah. Right. Right. So tell us the truth. Now you have the yeah. information that this whole pandemic was a joke, right? And it's yeah, not real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, is laughter itself funny? Because when you mentioned your child crying, I recall that you know when they're hungry and you want that to go away because it is actually painful to hear. Yeah. Laughter, it seems to me, intrinsically jubilous, yeah. joyous. It's um, I mean, it's a kind of glorious thing. I I'm very I never I never set out to study it. I stumbled on it completely by accident, and I absolutely adore it because it is just such an interesting behaviour. And it leads you in all sorts of interesting directions, but it also just makes you feel better when you've been thinking about it. Or best of all, recording some examples of it. You know, it's just, it is just delightful. And I think it is um, because it doesn't happen randomly. You know, people don't laugh just anywhere and with anyone. Um, you laugh more when you're with someone you feel comfortable with and safe with and fond of. You know, it's like an in, absolute index of that. There is data showing from a guy called uh, Greg Bryant in the US. He's shown that people listening to laughter exerted from conversations from two people can tell how close those two friends are just from how they laugh together which is amazing you know and that's it's a it's it's a, it's a sort of beautiful thing we began the discussion by talking about the culture wars and isn't it an irony that the one space being targeted by these culture wars is humor i'm thinking of dave chappelle he's yeah. not the only one however what is it about the refusal to use rational thought and then homing in on comedy. The one space, it's that free floating release for all of us. I don't care who you are. Comedy is that one place that we can let go. Laughter is that place. Yes, it's, it's been the home to many vituperations of political controversy of kings we know this some people have theorized such as umberto eco that it is no coincidence that the comedy of aristotle was disappeared not mm. the tragedy there's something about laughter and comedy that we need and yet it is being taken hostage by this woke authoritarian mob and this, there is something very interesting that you said that, so we've had, as far as we can see, as soon as you get modern humans, you get humour. And as soon as you get modern humans, you get people who have the role of, of a, the joker, the trickster. And it is an ambiguous role because you have permission to set out to make people laugh, but you also are sort of given a freedom to be a bit wild it's a bit uncontrolled laughter can kind of go in different places and that's always been true I don't know if this is true I got this from a I think an episode of horrible histories but when um when King Henry VIII when his courtiers had to give him bad news they would get his court jester to do this because he sort of had permission to do things that the others wouldn't they would have been in a lot more trouble because of telling him something he didn't want to hear i hope that's true it's a lovely story but it's kind of getting again there's this it's a very ambiguous position so they have a sort of simultaneously a freedom but also there's a danger and there's a permission but also uh, something unknown about where that might take you 
And that, I think, makes it a bit of a lightning rod when you want to find, you know, when, when you are concerned about feeling offended. Because that's going to happen more likely in a comedy environment than if you go and see a music performance or Shakespeare play. There may well be something in the Shakespeare play that you find offensive, but it is sort of there's not there's not one person who's apparently written it all standing up in front of you and everyone around you laughing. So there's but I think there's also there's also it's also true that if if no one laughs, you know, if something wasn't funny, if the whole audience is just like, no, we're not doing that. And I have seen that happen. You know, there could be a different audience that would that would work. And you know, right now in that moment that isn't working. And that's that's on the comedian, you know, that's people aren't laughing, people aren't laughing. But you don't have any right to expect just as the comedian doesn't have a right just because you're trying to be funny doesn't mean to say the audience have to laugh that is true but also just because you're in the audience doesn't mean to say you're going to find everything funny there isn't a right in the audience to this is going to completely fit with what I want to see this is that is going to be the case and so it is entirely possible that you will see something or hear something that you doesn't make you laugh and that's fine that's okay. In the same way that, you know, the com comedians get very used to jokes not landing, you know, or how you have to refine a joke to make it most likely that people will laugh. That's part of their art is working that out. But it still doesn't mean to say people will laugh at the end of it. That you get bad nights, you get bad audiences, that you'll hear all sorts of reasons for it, but that it happens. And you don't often see the comedians getting offended by an audience not laughing, but you do find people getting very offended when something said said by the comedian that they felt that made them not laugh and made them feel that it was inappropriate and shouldn't happen at all. I wonder if part of that is the fact that the rest of the audience did laugh. So the Dave Chappelle thing, people, the audience is, is laughing all the way through. There's very few points, very few things that don't land in that routine. So maybe they're sort of thinking, well, not only was it offensive, but all the rest of the audience seem to be finding that okay. And therefore somehow that makes it worse. But um, I think that's probably, again, always happened. There's because, because of the nature of comedy and the nature of being a humorist and being, you know, this kind of trickstery status. Um, but I think the difference now is that people can kind of, you know, make, make, make their feelings about this known to a wider audience. You know, there's a, other than saying to your friends, well, I didn't like that joke. Um, it's fine. You don't have to like the joke. You don't have to. You don't. You, you, there's no law that says you have to find any of this funny. But I think unless somebody's actually getting on stage and kind of following things that would actually sound like legally defined hate speech, then you just have to accept that there are things, things that happen. It was very noticeable. With um, somebody pointed out in the Dave Chappelle especially also talks about space Jews, and I haven't seen anybody demonstrating about that. You know, because he's a comedian and he's pushing things. It's, and you know, it was funny. <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. It was funny. So it's um, you know, and and Dave Chappelle has always like Louis C.K. was always telling stuff right on the edge. It's not like these recently suddenly become very dangerously out of control comedians. They've always been pushing at things because that's their style of comedy. Some stuff doesn't do that. Lots of stuff does, and it's not you know it's not like there's been some sort of sudden change. I think what's changed is largely how people are able to gain an audience for what they feel is something they didn't like which again fine you can do that but I don't think you have the right to say probably that the comedian should stop doing what they're doing if they are you know that's there was an audience laughing it wasn't that this fell to a room of, of dead air you know so yeah well it makes me think a lot about why people have targeted comedy from the angle of they believe themselves to be right-minded socially aware socially just of all places to take aim. 
the one place that unites us all, comedy. And as you mentioned, it wasn't just a space Jews joke that he made, but he made jokes about lesbians. And I didn't see yes. lesbians getting up in arms at <laughs> all. I laughed. I find lesbian jokes funny. I am one. <laughs> there seems to be something quite off where, on the one hand, we're being told on Twitter, get educated. You don't understand the science. People are going off about intersex conditions as being neither male or female, when in fact that's not what the science says, but leave that as it may. And then we're being told by people to get educated only to have them rehash what is already well thought out and well-researched science. So there seems to be this tipping point where the severity of one group's will to take aim at what is science both the solidity of certain conclusions made and the uncertainty, that quicksand of asking questions, of even getting it wrong. But science is based on being wrong and being wrong again and again until it's not, right? Yep. And this will that we all agree, and that what annoys me about the social justice warriors is they believe themselves to be on the left. Well, I'm on the left and I don't resonate with anything they're saying. They believe themselves to impose a will upon all of us that we will thusly, thou shalt not laugh at Dave Chappelle, thou shalt boycott his comedy sessions, and thou shalt agree that everyone's gender identity is on a spectrum where these things have not been proven in science. So I end up wondering why there's been such an attention on what I would call scientific hokum rather than on the likes of what you do or what Gina Rippon does. She's been on the show. This is amazing, the kind of work that you have all done. And that is being obscured by this <laughs> tribal, medieval-styled warfare of what seems to me to be virulent misogyny. I think we're coping, but I mean, somebody pointed out the similarity with when the printing press became a thing, and that sort of led to 200 years of uprise and upheaval and something we're, we're at the start of something similar with the internet we didn't realize it would do the same thing but it has and I think one of the most immediate but proximal causes is that when you're on social media um, there's a sort of simultaneous feeling of well I've said something on social media that should probably happen now I've used my voice so you know come on come on everyone get, get on board but also you're confronted with the fact that not everybody agrees with you and that people exist in the world who don't agree with you and of course if you just had that thought maybe you said it to a friend you wouldn't necessarily know there are loads of people who disagree with you, but you also wouldn't necessarily feel, well, I've, I've made this public statement, things need to change as a result. You know, there's that sort of feeling like you've done something when you do something on social media that's not the same as having a conversation. And I think those two things together do lead to something at the moment, a very toxic mix of um, people forming kind of alliances based on single topics, which is not how you normally make friends or sort of get together with people in the real world. And also... The, the consequence of that is that we fall back onto some extremely familiar bases of sort of deciding who, whose voice does matter. And historically, women's voices have struggled to be heard. And we're seeing that happen again now. It's just, it's like you say, it's, it's, there's, a, there's, no, um, there's no great mystery there. And, it, and it's, uh, it's not nice, but that's exactly what's happened. It's by no means the only thing. But it's, um, I think that's a one very clear example that you've pointed to. And it's coming from us sort of at a bigger level, like zooming out, trying to negotiate how you even navigate 
these spaces where suddenly you're having or, or we have a totally different basis for our social interactions with people it's quite a coincidence it's almost as if sex were real sophie <laughs> i know what <laughs> go figure hey <laughs> Thank you.